Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brabeck. And this is a special episode because we are not covering any sort of a text. We did an interview, didn't we, Catherine? Oh my gosh, did we ever, with the most delightful of guests. And, you know, Kemper, we talked about this when we talked about the book The Floating Admiral, which our Patreon listeners will recall. Those in the know. I know. <laughs> little, the, the su- ne- never the miss super, an opportunity to do a Patreon vlog, right? <laughs> the super, super hip Patreon listeners. Thank you, all of you. But The Floating Admiral was a project of, in fact, the Detection Club. Indeed, yes. We talk about it at great length in that episode on Patreon, but we haven't really had much of a reason to talk about it yet in our regular podcast, but that day has come upon us. The Detection Club was a group of mystery authors who got together in the early 30s, and Agatha Christie was very much a part of this group. And and, the president um, of it. And a president and just very, very involved, actually, and lots of other big names, which many of you, I'm sure, already love, such as Dorothy Sayers, Anthony Barkley, Freeman Wills Crofts. The list goes on and on. Also, by the way, guess what else was on our Patreon was a discussion of Malice of Forethought, which I have to say I thought was terrific. And, you know, by Francis Isles. By which I mean Anthony Barkley. Yeah, Francis Isles, a.k.a. Anthony Barkley, a.k.a. Anthony Barkley Cox. <laughs> yes. Uh, he liked his pseudonyms. So we are speaking today with Martin Edwards, who wrote this fabulous book, The Golden Age of Murder, this encyclopedic tome. It is to the Detection Club what Mark Aldridge's book is to Christie Adaptations, what John Curran's book is to Agatha Christie's Notebooks. That is how deep and broad Martin Edwards's research and knowledge is, which he shows off in this book. We use it all the time for our podcast, and it is just a honestly gripping non-fictional account of so many of these authors, uh, Agatha Christie and lots of others. And that's basically what we spoke about with Mr. Edwards. I like to think of it as a Christie plus sort of a conversation because we talked a lot about Agatha Christie, but um, a bunch of other mystery novelists as well. Absolutely. We were so excited to just talk about the Detection Club and talk to the fact that Agatha was incredibly involved in her community in a way that I don't think actually we get to talk a lot about. Yeah, it's true. And in a way that I think, um, you know, a lot of people think of her as this shy, retiring, reserved sort of character. But, you know, as is so often the case, it was a little bit more complicated than that. And she actually did interact a lot with her contemporaries, and there was a lot of mutual respect. I should also mention that we were fortunate enough to be able to upload a video version of this interview. We did, of course, do this interview over Zoom since it's 2021. And as we've done before, there is a video of it uploaded to the YouTube channel for the International Agatha Christie Festival. So if you 
haven't visited it before, just go to YouTube and put International Agatha Christie Festival into your search field and the channel should pop right up. I highly recommend that you just subscribe to the channel so that you will be made aware of when there are future interviews that are uploaded there that we've done and and that other people have done. Let's just get right into the interview. We'll see you on the other side. We are so excited to be speaking with Martin Edwards today, uh, who is one of those people who has so many fingers and so many pies, so to speak. Uh, It makes us wonder how he finds time for, say, sleeping and eating. Uh, In addition to being one of England's leading solicitors in the area of employment law, uh, he's widely recognized as an authority on crime fiction, having written a much lauded study on the topic that we've referenced many, many times on our podcast. That would be The Golden Age of Murder, which is an encyclopedic and extremely entertaining, I should add, um, look at the authors of The Golden Age of Detective Fiction. What we on this podcast might call Christy et al., though I'm quite certain he would not call it that. <laughs> Uh, He is also a celebrated mystery writer in his own right, having published, by my count, I believe nearly two dozen novels over the past three decades. Um, And I'm not done because he is also the current president of the Detection Club. And last year in 2020, he was awarded the Crime Writers Association's Diamond Dagger, which sounds very dangerous. Um, And that apparently is the the highest honor in British crime writing in recognition of the uh, sustained excellence of his work in the genre. So, Martin, uh, welcome and congratulations. Well, thanks, Kemper. And it's it's great to be with you and uh, talking uh, uh, virtually about Agatha and uh, detective fiction. Yes. We're very excited to have you. And um, I'm a little bit jealous of how prolific you are. It's uh, quite the accomplishment. <laughs> well, thank, thanks, Catherine. But uh, uh, quite a lot of books, but written over a very long period of time. It's been a lifelong uh, uh, enthusiasm of mine, I must say. So I'm curious, how did you become interested in mysteries? I mean, what was your way in? I assume you were an avid mystery reader when, when you were younger, but I'm, I'm just curious how you developed the passion that you have. Yes, yes. Well, uh, it, it is quite literally a lifelong passion, and it, uh, it, it goes back to the age of eight, and it goes back specifically to Agatha Christie. Uh, Agatha Christie was, was, was the key influence, and what happened uh, uh, was that uh, at that uh, tender age, I, I was taken to a village fete in, in Cheshire, the county where, where I grew up, where I still live, in the northwest of England. Uh, but it was a fete organised by an American who'd come to live in Cheshire, and, and therefore it's done on the grand scale and he was somebody who'd worked in Hollywood he was a very senior person with MGM and he arranged that the village fate should have the world film premiere of a film called Murder Most Foul starring Margaret Rutherford as Agatha Christie's Miss Marple uh, albeit a film based on a book in which Miss Marple does not appear of course but um, uh, for a small child this was an extraordinary uh, uh, occasion I I remember it vividly uh, to this day Uh, a beautiful sunny uh, afternoon it was the 4th of July as a matter of fact uh, that year and uh, Margaret Rutherford uh, um, I remember vividly um, landing in a helicopter from uh, uh, sort of coming down. Uh, quite extraordinary sight, uh, uh, landing in a cleared space in the grounds of this country house 
where the uh, fate was being held, and she declared the fate open. And then the uh, all the assembled uh, uh, visitors, and there were thousands of people. It was a huge event. It got into the national press. It was a huge event uh, in those days. Uh, we eventually got in to see the film, and I loved it. And um, I went home that night with my my sort of brain buzzing with the excitement of the the story. You know, the the clues, the mystery, the amateur detective, the red herrings, the uh, unexpected solution. I absolutely loved it. Uh, and so uh, my grandmother was was alive in those days. She was living with us. She had a few Agatha Christie paperbacks. I picked one off the shelf called Murder at the Vicarage because that did have Miss Marple in the story. I started reading. And from that moment, I was hooked. I was hooked in two ways. Firstly, as a reader and as a lover of detective fiction, first and foremost, Agatha Christie. And secondly, it was something I wanted to do myself. I wanted to emulate uh, Agatha in some small way and write detective stories that entertained other people the way that hers entertained me. So, so it all does stem from Agatha. That's, I, I mean, I couldn't ask for a better, I think, uh, origin story. I mean, also Margaret Rutherford kind of making a yeah. James Bond entrance. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's incredible. You could not make it up. It was uh, astonishing. People in that village still... Uh, people still remember it. I, I, I gave a talk in London uh, three or four years ago uh, to the Oxford Union Society in London, and um, somebody in the audience came from my hometown, and she had been there too. It turned out she still remembered. She still remembered that occasion. It was it was utterly memorable. It's it's so great because I mean the the village fate is also such a yeah. obviously Christie yeah. trope and you know yeah. Dead Man's Folly and we That's should let you know by the way we we cover all of Christie's works in chronological order um, by publication date and we've just uh, finished covering the Pale Horse so we're quite oh, right. far along but yes. we still do have a couple to go so it wasn't too in in the uh, you know it was in the fairly recent past that we covered dead man's folly and the uh yeah. the village fate i also love the idea that it was a fate organized by an american so even though it's yeah. a british, british thing it was totally overdone <laughs> it was it was out of this world a, a, an unrepeatable one off but uh, it was a huge thing in my life really it's uh, had a great influence great impact I also love that the first book was Murder at the Vicarage. We we love Murder at the Vicarage. Just yeah. like adore Murder at the Vicarage. Um, the voice in it is so kind of compelling, and I mm. I think um, especially especially the child reading it. Like I yeah. still distinctly remembered. I read it probably when I was like nine years old or something, and we reread it for the podcast. You know, every single detail of it just pops back. You know. Yeah. And one of her sort of, I think as an entry point, I know that we always have this conversation and I don't know what you would recommend ultimately, Martin, and we'll make you answer that probably. But people always ask like what a good entry point is. And usually like we're inclined to say something like death on the Nile, but I often wonder if it's a younger reader. It's not that murder at the Vicarage is not actually gruesome. It is, but um if that's not actually like a very compelling entry point into Christie. Yeah, well, well, it certainly worked for me, that's for sure. So uh, so I, I would certainly recommend it unhesitatingly. I, I loved it and I loved the 
the the idea of the twists and being surprised I, I still enjoy that that sensation when when i experience it and uh, and i got that sensation repeatedly from those early books even a book like the seven dials mystery which is not agatha's greatest book by a long short the the double twist at the end really i, I remember quite vividly the experience of uh, being bowled over by it uh you know so uh, so it, it did it did make a, a tremendous impression on me at just the age when when you're starting to uh think more for yourself and it, it uh it it resonated through the years yeah no i i agree with that i think that um the uh the, the murder at the vicarage, you know, we have that currently in our, our top 10 is number 10, actually. And we're, we're I think, determined to keep it in the top 10 uh, when we're done. Because we're also ranking all these novels. As right, well. so, right, right, right. just a, a ridiculous yet <laughs> uh, uh, fun endeavor as well. You know, yeah. ridiculous and enjoyable in equal measure. But, um, yeah, we're, we're huge fans of that title. And also, I love that you gave a shout out to Seven Dials because we've ranked it quite low. But there are many people who have a lot of affection for it for that specific reason because it really is a very clever and unexpected yeah. twist at the end of that yeah. so i think it probably is one of the better of the of the thriller titles for that yeah I, I would agree i would agree but i should say before we because we could obviously talk with you about christy and christy alone for probably three hours um you know our podcast is obviously more or less focused on christy exclusively but the two of us are, of course, interested in other writers. We know you're very much inter interested in, in other uh, uh, detective fiction and crime fiction writers. And um, I would say, you know, what's so fascinating about the story that you tell in The Golden Age of Murder is how, you know, Christy and a number of other prominent mystery authors of her day banded mm. together to form yeah. The Detection Club. And, yeah. uh, you know, we probably have a number of listeners who aren't actually familiar with The Detection Club. So as, you know, one of the preeminent sort of researchers into the old Detection Club and as the current leader of, you know, the contemporary Detection Club, I wonder if you could just give us a sense of what that is. Well, it, it's really the the oldest social network uh, for crime writers anywhere in the world, and it came into being uh, uh, in 1930, the, the year of murder at the vicarage, uh, and really at a time when crime writers, by and large, didn't know each other. And uh, what had happened a couple of years earlier was that Anthony Barclay Cox, who, who wrote as Anthony Barclay and as Francis Isles, he had the idea of inviting a few uh, leading uh, detective novelists around for dinner and that was a success so there were more dinners uh, and more people invited and uh, before long he was a great ideas man uh, Anthony Barclay and he had the idea of forming them into a club but uh, not a club that just anybody could join it uh, there was a a, a kind of secret uh, ballot uh, selection process. The idea was that the writers had to be of a certain standard. They were very keen on their uh, standards, although, uh, as always with these things, they're applied in a slightly uh, maverick kind of way in practice. But uh, uh, Agatha Christie was one of the founder members, Dorothy L. Sayers, A.A. A. Milne, uh, who'd written The Red House Mystery before he went on to Winnie the Pooh uh, and Fame and Fortune, uh, uh, Donald Knox, H.C. Bailey, Freeman Wills Cross, and the first president was uh, G.K. Chesterton. They'd, they'd invited Conan Doyle, but he, he was uh, 
uh, very frail. It was a few months before he died, so he couldn't accept. But Chesterton did accept. And so they formed this club. And it was at a time, as I've discussed in the Golden Age of Murder, when certainly Barclay and Sayers and Christie had all, all had in the recent past, pretty traumatic experiences in their personal lives. And I think that uh, to some extent for them, the detection club was a refuge. It was a place where they could uh, uh, meet like-minded folk, people who understood the ups and downs of being a writer. I think that's that's an enduring feature of the detection club, as, as it is today of the Crime Rights Association, Mystery Writers of America and so on. Uh, this sharing of experience, crying on each other's shoulder uh, where appropriate. So uh, so the, the club was formed and it, and it quickly uh, became quite important in the world of detective fiction. And they, they wrote collaborative stories that were broadcast on the BBC. And then uh, uh, the year after the formation in 1931, they wrote... Um, a collaborative novel. This is uh, this is it. The, the floating admiral. Uh, that's the the first edition. It's still in print, uh, and that was uh, a book uh, which had thirteen members contributing. Agatha Christie was one of them. She she wrote an early chapter, a very good early chapter. Mm-hmm. Chesterton wrote a prologue. Sayers Sayers wrote a chapter. Freem Wilscrofts. Anthony Barclay had the terrible duty of writing the concluding chapter because they'd not planned the story so so he wrote a very long chapter at the end trying to pull it all together uh, and they call the chapter clearing up the mess uh, which probably tells you how he felt about it but um but it, it was a fun book and it, it was actually a pretty good story it hangs together uh, fairly well. It's very entertainingly written, seeing all these different styles, one person taking over from another without much in the way of uh, organisation at all. They all had to write their idea of what the solution would be, and that was included at the end. That's that's quite an entertaining and informative read in itself. So The Floating Admiral was really a, a landmark book, and it was the first of quite a number of, uh, of publications that the Detection Club has been responsible for over the years. The most recent one is a book called How Done It, which is uh, a book that celebrated the 90th birthday of the club last year. It's a book about the art and craft of mystery writing with 90 contributions edited by myself. But there's a piece by Christie about uh, about plotting, of course, and, and pieces by Sayers and Chesterton, as well as many of the luminaries of today, like John Le Carre, Len Dayton, Ian Rankin, uh, Sophie Hanna, uh, and uh, Val McDermott, Anne Cleves, and, and many more. So the Detection Club has, has continued to exist, and it's continued to have this very collegiate ethos. It remains a small club, uh, currently only about 60 members. Uh, but this this idea of mutual support has remained very important uh, to the present members as, as it was in the past. And so all the members and all the estates of the deceased members contributed to how done it without, without charge to help to keep the club afloat uh, financially. It uh, just shows you the, the enthusiasm that people still have for it. And it all goes back to Christie and the others back in 1930. 
we should encourage people to, I was actually going to ask you very specifically about How Done It, which is such a recent publication. I, I myself actually have not read it yet. Um, and I think, you know, I, I'm certainly going to be buying it. And I think we should encourage people to check that out, especially because I was very interested to see that it does have a piece by Christie. And I'm, I'm just curious about what, as to what that piece is. Is that a, um, an essay that she had written somewhere else it's, at some point? Or? It's a, it's a, an, an extract from something that she'd written previously. Gotcha. And what, what, I did with the book the way it turned out anyway. Is it event? It, eventually, it became a huge book. Uh, I've, I've got a copy on the shelf. I, uh, pull it down. It's uh, it's a huge book now, but um, wow. but it was originally meant to be quite a small book. Uh, I thought maybe about twenty people uh, uh, contributing, but in the end, there were ninety. And so the as it grew and grew, I, my thinking about it changed. And so I, I, I thought that the essays of the past, I would take elements that still seem to me to be relevant to people uh, today, whether they're fans or whether they're interested in the craft of writing. And it was a question of trying to knit these things together to, to make something that was uh, a coherent whole. Uh, so that, that was quite an interesting exercise in itself, as you can imagine, with so many new original essays but grafting in these pieces from the past as well and so that that was an unusual thing to do but but actually very very rewarding as a as a, an exercise and as an insight into the way that different writers feel about the writing process i can't i i love a big you know hunk of a book like that so i'm i'm excited to to get my hands on that <laughs> Um, the original premise of like I'm trying to think of the writers association like how the detection club was formed and it seems to me that it has a little bit of a basis in other sort of writers groups and art groups that came before it and I was thinking about that in regards to the floating admiral in particular because obviously what the floating admiral is actually doing is playing a sort of version of exquisite corpse and that obviously was something that was extremely popular with, for example, the Surrealists. Yes, yes. So that was clearly another kind of working group in a lot of ways, yeah. right? And, you know, it's a parlor game in some ways, but yeah. also a massive artistic endeavor. And so Exquisite Corpse obviously is drawing um, or painting, but it seems to me that that would have come right before then. And I just wondered yeah. a little bit if there was any sort of, if you knew from research or anything else, where they were drawing some of their influences in. Because also it seems to me a little bit like it has some reference in probably like university clubs, right? Too, that that's also where mm. that kind of working mm. group is coming from. And I just didn't know if you knew of sort of any of the inspirational background. My personal take on it, which, which is no more than an informed guess, if I'm honest, is that you, I, I think you, you do always ha have situations where ideas are in the ether, they're in the air. And so people come sometimes quite separately to similar conclusions. It's, it's very interesting that you mention Exquisite Corpse because when, when I wrote 
uh, a book called Gallows Court a couple of years ago, which was a, a kind of homage to golden age fiction set in 1930 for very deliberate reasons. Um, I actually talk about Exquisite Corpse, not because um, I relate it directly to Christian members of the Detection Club, but because I do agree with, with the point you're making, Catherine, that it, it's one of those ideas that's in the atmosphere of the times. And so it seemed to me to fit into a book, albeit written in the 21st century, that, that seeks to uh, play with uh, the atmosphere of the times and what was going on in, in those days. So, so I, I think that the these influences are often indirect. They may be there subconsciously, or it may be that people come to similar conclusions independently. But, but when when you stand back many years later, you, you see these things developing along similar lines at uh, uh, within one particular era. That's that's the way I see it. That makes sense. Um, I was interested, we covered actually the Floating Admiral in um, uh, a Patreon episode, which is sort of a, a bonus stream of content that we do on the side. And it was great fun to cover it. And, uh, and I have to say, um, one of my takeaways from it, and, and this dovetails sort of nicely into my next question for you, but one of my takeaways from it is that that last chapter, I mean, Anthony Barkley was really doing the heavy lifting for that. Yeah. <laughs> For that book. And I was struck by um, how funny he, he is actually in, you know, the book even ends in this, it's sort of delightfully jocular way. And it really, it's, it's sort of the opposite of leaving a bad taste in your mouth because the book yeah. gets a little down, you know, and stuck in the muck of multiple people trying to write a mystery somewhere yeah. two thirds of the way in. And he really lifts it out of the muck. And by the end, you're like, Oh, delightful. Um, and my, my takeaway from that, because I haven't read as much Anthony Barkley, I actually, after, you know, subsequent to that, did read The Poison Chocolates Case. Uh, I'm going to ask you about that as well. But um, my takeaway was, oh, you know, if I like Agatha Christie and I like, you know, the lightness that she often brings to the genre, um, Anthony Barkley might actually be someone who's perhaps doing something a little similar. And if mm -hmm. I like Christie, maybe I'll like Barkley. And yeah. You know, I'm curious if um, you have almost like recommendations for readers who are focused very, very much on Christy as we are, because Christy obviously is the one she's the go to. Right. She's the one yes. that's yeah. the most widely published. So you don't have yeah. to look for her. She's in every bookstore yeah. in every library. But who are the writers um, honestly, either of the golden age or even later who are doing Christie-ish things who, you know, a, a Christie reader or a Christie fan may particularly enjoy. How can we broaden our horizons? I suppose is my question as Christie. Yes. Yeah, so and, and it's a good question. I, I think, uh, Kemper. And I, I don't think there's any doubt that, that Christie was a huge fan of Anthony Barclay. I think for proof of that, if, if, we look at John Curran's uh, wonderful book about the secret notebooks. Um, she she writes uh, at one point in, in her exercise books about the detection club. She was thinking of, of a novel set, set in, in the detection club. And she writes down the names of, of various members. And next to 
Anthony Barclay, she puts fantastic writer. So, <laughs> yeah, that's that's what she thought about Anthony Barclay. And when she wrote about it, she, she makes passing reference to him from time to time. And she was clearly a big fan. And uh, I, I think they, they had a shared uh, enthusiasm for P.G. Woodhouse, which I think was reciprocated. Um, and I think you're absolutely right about the, the wit of Barclay. He was a very witty writer. You see it in, in a number of books. He was very uh, ironic. He was also very cynical at times, perhaps excessively so. But I, I think this gift for ingenuity is, uh, is something that Christie was very impressed by. I think that she... I'm guessing now, but I, I think she probably saw him as more of a soulmate than, than perhaps any other uh, detective novelist of the time. He was doing the sort of things in some of his books that she was trying to do because he was a great innovator and experimenter. And of course, Agatha was as well. It's often overlooked that, that she's a very innovative writer, uh, not in every book, but, but, but in quite a lot of books. She experiments, she innovates, she takes things uh, to a fresh level. And Barclay, in, in different ways, was doing the same thing at roughly the same time, not for as many years. He had a relatively brief career. But but I, I think that there was a great affinity between the two of them. I think if you like Agatha Christie, uh, there's a very good chance that you'll be interested in, in Barclay's uh, books. As, as well. In terms of other writers, she she was very friendly with Dorothy L. Sayers. She particularly liked the early Sayers books rather than the later ones uh, with uh, with Harry Vane. I think she describes Whimsy at one point as a good man spoiled in, in later books. Uh, not, not a view that, that I would necessarily agree with, I must say, but, but I think she preferred the, the early books. In terms of later writers, I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, that um, if you like Christie, you'll be interested in Edmund Crispin. He was uh, he was a, a great admirer of Christie. They they knew each other through the Detection Club. John Dixon Carr, one of the uh, uh, minority of Detection Club members who was American, he was very friendly with Christie. Uh, he's referenced in uh, one or two of the books, uh, and I, I think that she. She got on with him personally. I think she enjoyed his books enormously. And I think that, although, of course, he was the great specialist in the locked room mystery, uh, uh, I think that uh, she certainly enjoyed those books. And there's, there's a lot of John Dixon Carr that will appeal to the Christie fans. Um, she, she makes a sort of oblique reference in, in uh, uh, the clocks to Freeman Wills Crofts, the alibi type of mystery. Cyril Quain, I think, is the, the character uh, uh, named in the book. But, but I, I think she probably enjoyed those, but to perhaps uh, a lesser extent, because there wasn't quite the same sense of fun that you get with Anthony Barclay and with Edmund Crispin and with Christiana Brand, another Detection Club member uh, from the late 40s onwards. So, so I, I think with, with Christie, uh, she, she, she had a sense of humour uh, uh, that comes over, I, I believe, in, in a lot of the novels. And I think she liked wit in uh, crime fiction. She liked the light-hearted touch, even in, in the uh, books that dealt with such a serious subject as murder. So I, I think it's that element of humour that 
appeals to her. And if if you like that element in in Christie, then then I think certainly with the likes of Barclay, Evan Crispin, Christiana Brand, uh, you won't go that far wrong because they could all plot as well. John Dixon Carr as well. Uh, you get very strong plots by and large in those books too. So so there's a lot to uh, to enjoy. I have not Christiana Brand, so I'm going to have to, to, to pick some up. But it's funny, um, Catherine has heard me uh, go on and on about Edmund Crispin for years now. I'm just Gervais Fenn is, you know, after all of Christie's creations, probably my favorite detective mm. of the golden age. And before we started doing the podcast, when people would ask uh, for a, a recommendation beyond Christie, I would always say, read the moving toy shop because it's Agatha Christie meets PG Woodhouse. Now yeah. that I'm a much closer reader of Christie though, what I realize is that Christie herself has many Woodhousean elements, you know, in yeah. her novel. She of course has that likeness of touch herself. So I don't think I would describe it exactly that way, but I totally agree with you. I think they have that same uh, lightness of touch and wit. Yeah. It is yes. the best way. Yes. And joie, joie de vivre. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. to you by Best Fiends. What do you think it is about solving puzzles that makes the process so enjoyable, Catherine? Well, we've talked a lot about this camper, and as listeners have heard me say many times by now, to a large extent, it's about agency. The idea that we as readers or viewers or players can take an active role in solving a puzzle, thereby beyond it. No matter what that problem may be, a greedy murderer, say, or a bevy of obnoxious animated slugs, perhaps. Oh, don't get me started on the slugs, Kemper. Just the other day, Howie the Lizard and I vanquished quite a few of them. And then also, by the way, they had a Valentine's Day themed hearts reward. Oh, that must have been so special for you and Howie. Oh my gosh, you know it. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. What's a normal detection club meeting like? <laughs> um, uh, in, in normal times, uh, which of course we're not living in right now, but in, in normal times, there are three meetings a year. Uh, there are two meetings currently, uh, and they're, they're dinners, essentially. It's a social social get-together. That, that's, that's its raison d'etre and always has been. Uh, so, so there are uh, a couple of dinners at the Garrett Club. Uh, uh, there are members of the Detection Club who are members of the Garrett Club, so we get to, uh, to go there, which is, which is very, very agreeable indeed. And then there's the main annual dinner, uh, which is when uh, new members uh, are, are inducted, so to speak. Uh, and that takes place at, uh, at a variety of different venues. For the last few years, it's been at the Ritz Hotel. Before that, it was at the, uh, the Dorchester Hotel. Before that, at the uh, Middle Temple. And it's been at the Cafe Royal Savoy Hotel. So it's a, so it's a grand kind of uh, event. But, but they are essentially social events. We, we have, in recent years, started doing something a bit different. The Detection Club 
and the Crime Rights Association are both involved with uh, Gladstone's Library, which is in North Wales, but but not too far from where I am in Cheshire now. And uh, that's a wonderful atmospheric uh, historic library where, where you can stay in the library. There are rooms. And we have a weekend, which is... Oh, my heart. Yeah, it's a fantastic place. Uh, uh, I, I absolutely love it. And, uh, and so there are talks from members of the Detection Club uh, uh, over the weekend. And the people who come along uh, get to mingle with the, the writers. And it's, it's a very enjoyable experience. Sadly, it didn't happen last year for obvious reasons. Uh, whether it will happen this year, I'm, I'm by no means confident. But, but it will come back. In due course, and that's called Alibis in the Archive. And one of the things I've been trying to do as president, I became president in 2015, and I'm, I'm the eighth president over the 90 years. Um, what I've been trying to do is to try to make sure that members, first and foremost, enjoy and feel energized about the club. So that that's part of the reason for doing the books holding the events because it has to have a reason to exist because of course nowadays in social media the the original reasons for the detection club coming into being are not quite as compelling as as they were back in 1930 so it it has to have a reason to exist and and i think that for me the the great test was when uh, i was putting how done it together i found that pretty much every living member of the club wanted to contribute and not, not for the money because there wasn't any, but, but to support the club. And that was really rather wonderful. And the, the same with the estates of the deceased writers, the 20 odd uh, former members who contributed to the book. And it was that degree of enthusiasm and support from the great writers of today uh, that really uh, made me think, yes, the Detection Club still has a reason for being. And that's, uh, that's, that's very gratifying and it's, uh, it's quite humbling. Uh, and it, it's, um, it's, it's also exciting because, um, you know, I hope it will go on for many more years to come. Well, I suppose, uh, well, certainly we do as well. But I think that one of the things that is kind of lovely, you know, you said that it doesn't have the same, you know, plays on depth in the social media age, but at the same time, maybe it has a more important role because there is such this sort of digital divide between people that actually having something that's analog in a bunch of ways, I think is grounding. And especially when you're talking about something like crime, which obviously has very real world implications and books for the most part, no matter how many we've been reading on e-readers, especially during the pandemic, still I personally am like a book hoarder and um, normally my background, and it would have been my background if I had set it up earlier, normally my background is just like stacks of books. Um, But, you know, I think that there's something lovely about the idea of actually having, um, you know, face-to-face interaction, interactions in archive, actually discussions with people in person. And I suspect yeah. that when we come through this pandemic, um, I think that there will be even more cause for that, don't you think? 
I think you're absolutely right about that. I think if 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 we've learned one thing above all else is that we we are social beings and we crave this this interaction. And although the uh, thankfully the virtual uh, opportunities uh, uh, are, are much greater than they used to be in the past, and that has kept us going, I, I think an awful lot of people and certainly a lot of writers uh, are desperate to get to get back together in in person. I, I, I know that to be the case, and uh, I, I think that, that what you uh, forecast will will be proved to be absolutely right. Myself and. Uh, I'm, I'm, I am very optimistic indeed about the future for the Detection Club, even though it remains a small, uh, uh, tiny little, tiny little thing. But uh, uh, it, it's got a great heritage, and that's something uh, to cherish, I think, and something to celebrate, and and something to to keep going. Which is the reason why I'm I'm very keen on the archives. I was asked a few years ago to become the archivist. Um, by Simon Brett, who was the previous president. And the archives are now held at this place, Gladstone's Library. Uh, and that's something that's developing. It's developing very slowly, of course, but uh, it's something I think is quite important to, to preserve what we can, the memories of the club, uh, for, for future uh, readers and enthusiasts to, uh, uh, to investigate. And future members, I mean, there has to be some element, right, that you're you're constantly learning from other people. And I guess yeah. that's also probably part of the point of the dinners. The social yeah. aspect is allowing you to engage with people who are practicing the same craft as you, right? Well, well, that, that's right. And one of the things that has really struck me in recent times um, is, is the global nature now of the interest in in the golden age of course in Christie but 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 in the heritage of crime fiction I, I went to a festival in Shanghai uh, 18 months ago and uh, there were thousands of people there uh, but I, I doubt if I met anybody over the age of 35 it's a young uh, a young audience and and great enthusiasts and and they had an exhibition of, of rare books, first editions of early Christie's, uh, inscribed books by John Dixon Carr. It was absolutely astonishing. And so in, in the Far East, in Japan as well, there's a lot of career. Uh, there's a lot of interest. It, it's, uh, I, I went to a festival in Iceland and discovered that the Prime Minister of Iceland is a great golden age crime fiction fan. Uh, so, so these things give me... Uh, give me great hope uh, that uh, that the what I often thought as I was growing up uh, was was a uh, a niche interest or something I, only I was interested in is actually a a very widespread interest that's shared by people from all kinds of different backgrounds. So, and I do find that uh, quite exciting. We've we've also found that I mean we're. Um, constantly amazed at just the 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 breadth of um, people who reach out to us who have listened to the podcast just all over the world yeah. from yeah. walks of life and um, you know it feels I mean we're we're obviously biased but it feels like Christie is just ne- just becomes more and more popular every year and yeah. yes and and just I think. Uh, crime fiction in general, and spe- perhaps even specifically golden age crime fiction. There's, there's just a, a real, um, you know, almost fervor for it um, among people yeah. we, we obviously love as well. Um, 
I wanted to ask you because we we also, of course, checked out. You did an interview recently on a uh, sister podcast of ours, which we're big fans of. She done it. We actually just yeah. did an interview on She Done It recently as well. Shout out to Caroline, uh, Caroline Crampton, who who runs that podcast. It's fantastic. And um, you um, you actually mentioned how um, after World War II. You know, the very specifically puzzle based mysteries that were all the rage in that interwar period, which is definitely mm-hmm. what we still think of, I think, when we're talking about classic golden age detective fiction. Yeah. How those puzzle based mysteries kind of went out of fashion after that. They fizzled in popularity, and many of that generation of writers just either stopped writing or, or fell out of favor. Of course, though, Christie is an exception to that. Yeah. And it wasn't really the focus of that conversation, but I, I wanted to ask you why <laughs> you think that Christie is such an exception. And I don't want to say that, you know, um, to the exclusion of other writers, there are plenty of other uh, golden age writers who are in print. And as you're saying, who are being rediscovered every day, hmm. but I think hmm. it's a pretty inescapable fact that Christie, for whatever reason, rose, you know, above all of those contemporaries, say in 1930, who started in the yes. club to, to be yeah. where she is now. And it's kind of one of our, you know, long-term uh, projects is answering that question because it's, it's writing. So it's not necessarily a simple question. So I'm not looking for the answer right now, but I'm just curious if you've, if you've thought about that and, and what you might have to say as to, you know, why Christie was able to bridge that gap specifically, you know, after the war and then in the fifties and sixties become even more popular than she was in the thirties and forties. Yeah. And then even in your till today. Yeah. Well, I, I think I, I agree that she, she is the exception to every rule, really. Um, yeah, when you think she, she is surely by far the most successful female playwright of, of all time, quite apart from everything else, it's it, uh, her breadth of achievement is quite astonishing, and and it it's difficult to generalise from Christie because she is unique. Um, she is one of a kind. Um, in terms of the question as to why, I think that it's got a lot to do with the nature of her writing. Of course, I, I look at Christie, particularly nowadays, uh, in terms of a craft. I look at it as, as one writer looking at, at another writer's approach and technique. And, and her gift really was for simplicity and straightforwardness. And that that that, that is a much... I think in any walk of life, really, uh, a much undervalued gift. Uh, yeah, as, as as a great lyricist once said, it's it it uh, it's easy to be complex. It's very difficult to write a simple lyric that, that everybody loves, uh, and uh, and I think that that's that's a proposition that's that's widely applicable. And with Christie, there's an element of universality. Why is it? that people in Africa, people in Australia, people in Japan, people in China, people in South America, uh, people of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different religions, no religion. Uh, why is it that all these very different people can find something in Christie? And that is because of the uh, simplicity of approach that you, you're just dealing with essential human types in the stories, not characterised in great depth, uh, by and large, but but people that we can all recognise uh, types of behaviour, and this of course is the genius of the murder of the 
vicarage and of Miss Marple, that although she's only ever lived in a small English village, uh, of course, it's only later she jets off to the West Indies or, or what, but uh, 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 she's grown up in this village. She's had a very narrow existence, but she's seen and understood, crucially, human nature, the way that people behave. And so the, the way that the butcher's boy or the fishmonger uh, or the person in the post office or the grocer, uh, the way that they have behaved in certain situations, she draws parallels and, and it enables her to solve the murder mystery. And in the same way, if, if you're living in Portugal or Brazil or uh, Australia or Tokyo or wherever it may be, you can recognise certain types of behaviour. And I, I think that this is, uh, th this is where we get to understand the, the breadth of appeal of these stories. It's because she, she doesn't uh, obscure the fundamentals in the way that most writers uh, were all tempted to do. She, she sticks to the basics and she does it very... Uh, uh, very cleverly and very persistently and over a long period of time you know that longevity does does matter uh, it does make a difference the fact that she kept going for so long I, I think she would still have been a, a huge figure had she finished when Sayers and Barclay did at the end of the 1930s but she wouldn't have been as huge I, I suspect uh, now there's so much material uh, that um, uh, you, you can, as you well know, uh, spend a long time reading those books and then, then you can start all over again if, if you want to. Uh, there's a lot to go at. And so that too is a contributory factor, in my opinion. Yeah. The way someone put it, I forget who it was. It might have been Sophie Hanna, actually, is that, you know, Christie wrote so much that if you do read the oeuvre overall, right? You, you, you start at the beginning and, and you go all the way through all 66 books. It takes so long to read them, but that by the time you've gotten to the end, it'll have been long enough since you've read the first one that you can just go back and start over. So it's just an yeah. endless cycle of, of yeah. Christie, should you, should you wish. And I, I think that is meaningful. Um, the other thing I, I wanted to ask you about, because off of that, that comment actually that you made about her, you know, um, really enduring after World War II, I was thinking about something that I think we've we've been noticing in the podcast and uh, in the books from the 50s and now going into the 60s, which is that the puzzle mystery aspect of the books changes. The books aren't quite as tightly constructed as puzzle mysteries yeah. in the 50s and then in the 60s. And yeah. it's funny because I'm going to disagree with something that we've been saying now a bit consistently for, for a while, which is that that represents a loosening and in, in some ways almost a, you know, a weakness of Christie's that, you know, she had this sort of tightness of construction at the beginning of her career. And perhaps that reflects a decline of some sort or the fact that she'd been doing it a lot. But I, I was thinking about it. And I think that perhaps it's also the fact that people were, that's not what people wanted as much then. It wasn't so much about the crosswordy puzzle aspect of books, which is why you get books like Ordeal by Innocence, where there's all of this psychological complexity, true yeah. psychological complexity layered over the book, unlike in Appointment with Death, where it seems a little bit more like a window dressing of psychological yeah. complexity. It's true psychological complexity in Ordeal by Innocence. Or we just have, we have Pale Horse on the Brain, because since we just finished that one, mm. you have horror. I mean, <clears throat> horror that's that's layered on it so that she's doing more and almost in a way 
perhaps bridging the gap from that kind of golden age to, you know, more of a P.D. James, Patricia Highsmith. I mean, writers who are solving puzzles, maybe, <laughs> to a certain extent. P.D. James, certainly. Patricia Highsmith, not so much. Um, but doing a lot more that she's actually, is an evolution, perhaps, as yes. opposed to decline. Do you think that's a fair statement? I, I, I do. And, and I, I think that's quite an acute observation, actually, because although, of course, in the later books, we, we do see decline. Yes. I think that some of the books, um, a, a book I, I really enjoy, Merger, Emerges Announced, for example, I, I think some of those do show how she adapts to the times to some extent. Now, in a book like Third Girl, she's trying to adapt to the times. It doesn't really work, mm-hmm. uh, in my opinion. Um, but in Emerges Announced, uh, I, I think the point is made that, you know, that we've now had the Second World War and, Nobody knows who anybody is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, that, that's relevant to the story in, in more than one way. Uh, and, and yet it's, it's embracing uh, one aspect of the post-war uncertainty uh, that with other writers, uh, Highsmith being an obvious example, uh, was addressed in a, in a different kind of way. But Christie addresses it within the context of, of what she's interested in writing about. Right. Uh, you know, she sticks to, to what she knows she's good at, the, the puzzle mystery. But, but she does adapt to the times. I think Emerges Announced is quite a good example of, of that process. And then, then of course, Endless Night, which, which uh, does, does something that, that a previous critic had said was impossible and, and use, use a device that, that appeared to be unrepeatable, but she, she does it in a different way. Uh, there's a different voice in that book. And it, it's done, I think, very, very cleverly indeed. And even a book like The Clocks, which, which tends to be uh, uh, not highly regarded by a lot of Christie fans, I've, I've always found that a pretty interesting uh, book, partly because of all the discussion of the detective genre, uh, but also because of the idea of uh, it, the plot itself plays plays with the notions of the detective genre. I think that's that, that's actually, I think, quite cleverly done. I think that's uh, uh, whilst not comparable with her masterpieces, it's actually a, uh, an underestimated Christian. I think the clocks. It's it's one of the early ones that I read, so I've got a soft spot for it. But uh, but I also think it has quite a bit of merit as well. Well, I'm excited to hear that coming up and I was dreading it a little bit because I <laughs> had that in my head that it's not not so good. So I'm glad to hear it. As often is the case, even even some of the, the not so good ones often have elements to recommend them. So Well, that that's right. And you've mentioned the pale horse, and that that's that's a novel I've I've reread recently because there's uh, uh in the novel I'm writing at the moment, there's a sort of uh hat tip, if you like, to the pale horse. Uh, and, and that again is a is a book that I think is, uh, although as you rightly say, more loosely constructed. Uh, it's actually a book with some very interesting components that I've been thinking about a lot as I've been writing my own novel. I was thinking about it only yesterday, actually. It's uh, 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 and and I think what she does in that book is is very very interesting. It's not a hundred percent successful, but it's still pretty successful. It's uh, it's a good book. I would say I enjoy it. 
we were talking about in our episode, um, I famously like Murder is Easy more than Kemper does. Um, I know that a lot of our listeners really like Murder is Easy. We have it ranked actually very low. Um, it has a, it has a bonkers ending. So, you know, that's kind of where that goes to. But we were talking about the fact that the interesting thing about, like, for example, The Pale Horse and about her writing career is that if you think about it, really, The Pale Horse is taking a lot of what she was writing about in Murder is Easy, which is this faux um, folk horror. Yeah. And she's taking that and years and years and years later, reusing some of that. But actually, and again, you think of later Christie as maybe not as successful um, from like a literary standpoint. But in this case in particular, she's taking something that she did decades earlier and it works like significantly better in The Pale Horse than those same sort of tropes did in a much earlier book. And I think that one of the things that, you know, if you're talking about longevity is that she um, looked, I think, at her own past and adapted yeah. to it, right? Yeah, that, that I, 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 I very much agree with that. I also agree that murder is uh, uh, easy, is underestimated. That, that was one of the very, very first books I read. And I, I greatly admired it at the time. I still think it's a good book. Uh, first of all, I like the, the initial premise, the initial setup. And secondly, I like the idea of having two least likely person uh, solutions. I think that's very, very well done. Uh, so, so I, I, I would rate that more highly than many people do. Um, I, that's a book I, I like for sure. Very, very controversial. How <laughs> we, we might have to revisit. I just, just keep, just keep on. Catherine's just chipping away at me. I know. It's like one of it's one of my goals is to keep convincing Kemper. <laughs> it will slowly rise. The one thing I mentioned this in in an earlier question, but I did want to ask you because I think this is fascinating. Um, the poison chocolates case which yeah. is um, a wonderful sort of, I mean, Anthony Barkley kind of did that idea, right, of setting mm. a murder mystery in and among a detection club yeah. sort of setting. I mean, it's, yeah. and for anyone who hasn't read it, I mean, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And then you actually wrote an alternate solution to The Poison. Yeah. I mean, how did that come about and, and what was that process like? Well, that that was something I, I enjoyed hugely. Uh, that's a book I've always admired. Christie definitely admired it, uh, and, uh, and as did Sayers, it, it was a hugely successful book. And this idea of the uh, uh, the supposedly omniscient detective getting it wrong, and and the idea of the convincing solution to the mystery being overturned and then it's overturned again and then it's overturned again and so on. Uh, very, very interesting uh, on all sorts of levels, uh, starting with entertainment uh, because it is a very uh, a witty story in my opinion. And um, I was very keen that the British Library should should reprint it as part of the Crime Classics series. And they, they agreed and then I uh, uh, suggested they might care to include Christiana's, uh, Christiana Brand's solution, uh, written in the late 70s, that wasn't widely available. It, it had been printed in the States, but not in Britain, uh, and, and then only in a, in a fairly limited way. 
Uh, and so they agreed to that. They secured the rights to reprint that. And then during a conversation, I, I, I may have said that I, I always fancied the idea of having a go, but they, they suggested I, I, I do that. And so they commissioned me to write a new ending. And um, I thought about it, reread the book yet again. And an idea came to me that I was very taken by, uh, that I felt was in keeping. And I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't had an idea that I felt was strong enough, because it, it, it would have been pointless. But I, I, I was actually uh, bowled over by, by this particular idea. I felt it worked. Uh, I wrote it very quickly. It only took a day or two. It's only 3,000, 4,000 words. But I very much enjoyed getting into the style of Barclay as a writer. I quite like doing that. Uh, I've written Sherlock Holmes stories, for instance. And I once completed another writer's book after, after the writer died. Uh, so I, I enjoyed trying to get into the Barclay mindset and the Barclay style, but also come up with a solution that I thought there was a clue to it in Barclay's text. So I developed that, and um, and I, I, I was also very happy with the, the way that reviewers and readers reacted to it. Uh, so, because you always worry about that, uh, but um, but it, it seemed to go down very well. And from an artistic point of view, for me as an exercise uh, in writing, it was very very satisfying thing to do to write a, a fresh take on something that uh, uh, that gives a new spin on a, a book I've I've always admired. Yeah, I, I mean, I, and I should have explained just for anyone who hasn't read it, you know, the Poison Chocolates case is it, it, it's a grouping of sort of amateur sleuths or, and some of them aren't so amateur, but it's, you know, we have um, Barclays, uh, Roger Sheringham is one of them, you know, his detective, and then a bunch of other people who are all proposing solutions to this case. And it's, you know, one after another, they seem like, oh, okay, that's the answer. And then they're just knocked down. And then, you know, yeah. it, we, we go through and it's so, uh, you know, it's so entertainingly done and, and, um, and but ingeniously done also. Yeah. And um, I have to admit, I read, you know, the, the edition that I read w did not include what your alternate solution. So I'm going to have to actually check out what yours is because it's so perfect, I think, too. It's like, why not include include another <laughs> one? <laughs> and so I think it's it's the it's a, the more the merrier sort of situation. So yeah. that seems like it's just a, a great book to add on to the perfect book to add yes. on to in that way. Yes. And I think it is. Um, anyone who is a, a Christie fan and and just a uh, a murder mystery fan in general would love that book. There's just the, I mean I'm obviously a huge evangelist for the the poison chocolates case as you can tell and the moving toy shop, um, but uh, I'm going to have to check out your your alternate uh, ending. So um, that's great. I mean that just sounds like a dream for a mystery writer to. Yeah, it, it, it was it was a it was a lucky break and a, and a great opportunity and and just just a a really enjoyable thing to do. I, I, I love doing it. That's great. You know, we usually asked, uh, we usually ask if you, um, you know, to anyone we interview what your favorite Christie is. It sounds like it, it might be the murder at the Vicarage just due to all those memories, but it, it, maybe not. Do you, do you have a particular title? Yeah, I, I think And Then There Anon, which I think is the supreme golden age detective novel. I, again, that was one I read very young, and I, I probably by the age of ten, I probably read it three or four times. I, I loved it that much. Uh, it, it absolutely bowled me over, 
and it is it, it is the ultimate classic who done it i i think it's and and it, yes it, it it's got this deeper resonance as well the idea of how do we do justice when the legal system lets us down that that theme as in murder on the orient express but it, it, it it's all perfectly done i think so uh, for me that is number one can i ask you a question actually based on that we have a tie at number one on our rankings and and then there were none is in the tie we currently have it at number two because I'm really pushy. And the number one is Five Little Pigs, which is my personal beloved Christie book. But we were talking about this at length um, in the last time we were sort of reevaluating the rankings. And we were discussing the idea that if you looked at like the things that are in our top 10, they're all doing something odd. So, and then there were none is actually not a particularly typical book for her. It's doing a bunch of things. It's doing a bunch of things that she does well, but it is um, singular. And Five Little Pigs structurally is very odd. It's like a very oddly structured book and she doesn't really do it again elsewhere. And, you know, Murder on the Orient Express, Murder of Roger Ackroyd, all of those are particularly singular stylistic and structural books that we kind of and the entirety i think of our top 10 the hollow we have in the top 10 um you know they're all doing something almost experimental because if you think of it yeah. and then for none i mean when people don't give her enough credit as being a like very inventive writer if you look at any of those books they're doing something that you know, are just like singularly inventive. Oh yes, absolutely, Ab- absolutely. And and I think that Five Little Pigs uh, is is. But when I first read it, again, I was very young, and it, it didn't didn't really do a lot for me. But then I went back to it later, and and it it's now uh, I, I I've matured in my my uh, views. Uh, in many ways, and uh, I, I see its merits much more clearly than I did originally. I think the ending, the 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 idea of uh, 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 that there, there is—I don't want to say too much about it. Don't want to uh, give a spoiler, but but there is an image uh, at the end which is very very dark, uh, as dark as you get almost in in uh, uh, class detective fiction and, and I think that's very striking it's one of the things I particularly take away from it also the idea of miscarriage of justice the cold case and so on so so yes it's certainly a book that I, I admire and I very much agree with your point about experimentation and innovation originality um, the, these are things that Christie deserves a lot of credit for uh, and I think that uh, the ABC murders, uh, again, I would put very, very high. Um, I, I also rate Peril Attend House very highly. Oh, you're you're uh, preaching to the choir. preaching to the choir on Peril Attend House. We, we had to knock it, we knocked it out of our top 10 for... It's number 11. It's number yeah. 11. Right. And it was very, very painful to knock it out. Of <laughs> I'm still not over it. I don't. I don't know if I'm really ever going to be okay with that. But. <laughs> Excellent. No, yeah. I just um, no. But I mean, I think that you know, again, that goes back possibly to the question of um, in 
endurance, right? Is that if you are actually somebody who can very cleverly um, experiment with form and are willing to do that, um, I think you are more adaptable going forward, you know? Not not that all of those um, golden age crime writers weren't actually, you know, pretty interesting in what they were doing. I think they often don't get enough credit for what they were doing, especially from, like the quote-unquote proper literary establishment, right? Yeah, sure, sure. And and there were people like Barclay, Sayers, uh, and, and others who were, who were experimenting as well. And some of the structural experiments have, have greatly influenced, you know, the Borgesian type of writers. Uh, Borges was a great fan of Golden Age detective fiction. I was very fascinated a few years ago, I visited uh, uh, Neruda's house in, in Chile and, and um, uh, I, I kind of digressed from the tour and, uh, when we were in his study and there was mention of his collection of thrillers. Oh, I'll have a look at those. And there's this row of, of uh, books by Detection Club members from the 1930s, which I thought was uh, fascinating. So there you are, you see Pablo Neruda saw the merits of these uh, writers. I love it. Pablo Neruda, T.S. Eliot, you know, it, yeah. it runs yeah. the gamut. Um, it, it's also really funny. We interviewed a while back now, a couple of years ago, John Curran, of course, since since we use his his books all the time. And he made the joke because it sounds like he um, that that he and you were on a similar trajectory in terms of Five Little Pigs that I was also on. And I think it's one that that many Christie readers um, go on, which is that when you first read it, you actually don't like it all that much because of the repetition. And it's just it's not one of her books, that, that except if you're Catherine. But it's, it's one of those books that doesn't necessarily the pages don't turn as breezily as they do in a normal Christie. So for that reason, until you revisit it, it might not be a favorite. And he joked that it's almost like there's a 12-step program for Five Little Pigs specifically. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we all have to see the light. We're like, oh, when when did it, you know, when did it change for you where you realized the brilliance of that book and you sort of yeah. submitted to Five Little Pigs? <laughs> well, that's, that's right. And Cards on the Table is another one that I, I admire. And that, that informed... Um, uh, the last novel I, I, I published, and I was fascinated because it's not explicitly referenced, and the the way it influences part of the story is very indirect. But I was fascinated. I, I saw an online review of, of, of my book, and that the, the guy who did that online review picked up the cards on the table uh, 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 element to it, which I thought was fascinating, and that's exactly the sort of reaction that you hope for. Uh, when you put these little things in, uh, in a very indirect way. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that, that's a book I, I really admire. We really like that, but we're talking, this goes along with the same thing that we've been talking about because Cards on the Table is a very polarizing book. People, yes. I really, we really, really like it. We have it ranked very highly, but like there are a lot of people who immensely dislike that book. Hmm. And it's funny because, I mean, Kemper and I don't know how to play bridge. We had to like look. No. Up, we had to look. No, up I, I, I don't either. <laughs> we like actually like spent like an annoying amount of time calling like each other, trying to be like, okay, so how do you play bridge? Because it's, I mean, it's critical actually to the solution. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. If you don't know what dummy is, you're right. gonna have like yeah. a little bit of a problem with that yeah. book. 
and it's also repetitive in some ways. Yeah. That that's that's true, and it's a rare example, I think, of Christy using a bit of specialized knowledge that everybody doesn't have. Uh, something that she didn't often do, and of course, most writers uh, uh, go in the other direction. Uh, she she is unusual in in being so accessible, but of course, that's part of of the reason why she has such a widespread appeal. Yeah, I think you could argue cards on the table. It also, you know, has that 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 element of um, we're her doing something unusual. It's the audacity of four suspects in a room. That's it, you know, and that's not normally. Often there's a sprawling cast of of characters, yeah. all of whom yeah. could be suspects, and it's just four, you know. It, it, that's that's exactly right. And the idea of a collect, collecting murderers that that was the bit that that particularly appealed to me. That that. That's a, that's a great idea. And if you think about it, it's it's a pretty original idea. And uh, uh, I think it's beautifully done. She doesn't uh, uh, make a huge amount of it, but of course it's integral to the story. Uh, and it's a good example of how she, uh, how she comes up with these uh, very, very appealing concepts uh, that uh, have rarely been done uh, previously. Uh, and even if they have been done, she gives them a fresh spin. Well, you know what's interesting, and I don't actually think I've ever pieced this together until talking to you, Martin, is that you mentioned as two of your favorites, and then there were none, and Cards on the Table. Both of them are books about collecting murderers. Yeah. And then there were none is also a book about somebody who has collected murderers. Mm. And I mean, that. Yeah, I can't, I can't really believe that I've ever placed those pieces together before, but that's definitely true of both of them. It's a very, very, very clever concept. Yeah, it is. It is. It, it, it fascinates me. <laughs> um, well, we should, you know, you probably have two anthologies to edit and like half a mystery novel to write before dinner time. So we, we should probably let you go. But we, we always have one final question. I'm very curious what your answer will be. It's a very simple question. It requires a very simple answer. Poirot or Marple? Poirot. Interesting. I thought you were going to go with Marple. I'll be honest. Yeah, well, I'm I'm a huge fan of Marple. Uh, And I mentioned before that the, uh, this concept of, 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 uh, uh, the woman who's had such a, a restricted life but understands human nature is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But the uh, the mysteries, by and large, in the best Poirots, I think, are uh, at a very high level. And that's true of a few murder at the vicarage, body in the library, murders announced, but it, it's not as consistently true, in my opinion with uh with the marbles so that's that's why i give that answer. that's that, that that's an excellent an excellent reason for a surprising answer <laughs> <laughs> it is the writer's job to surprise the crime writer's job anyway a, a, a fitting way to end um this was just absolutely delightful i mean thank you so much martin for sitting i really enjoyed it thank you so much yeah totally wonderful conversation well, 
one of my big takeaways from that fantastic conversation was that I need to check out Christiana Brand immediately. I have never read anything by her, I'm embarrassed to say. You know, I was really interested by what Martin Edwards had to say about her, and it sounds as though if one is a Christie fan, that it's worth reading at least one Christiana Brand title to see if it is to one's liking. So I have my marching orders from this interview. Yeah, my marching orders is I want to know how to get into the detection club, kind of. (laughs) Yes, indeed. It sort of bears repeating. I hope that we didn't embarrass Martin by how in awe we were of all that he does, but I really don't understand how he is a not only functional but preeminent attorney. He has a day job, but then he also writes these novels and he also does all of this, you know, this research and he's constantly editing anthologies and the golden age of murder is just, you know, such a project. I mean, it could have taken anyone 10 years to do that. So he has that under his belt. And then on top of all that, he's the president of the detection club. It's, it's just amazing. So I feel really honored actually that he took the time to sit down and talk Absolutely. You know what, Kemper, I'm recording this due to some recording logistical issues shoes literally in my coat closet on the floor (laughs) so what i would say about this is i remain impressed that he was in an impeccably tailored suit when he spoke to us on our zoom call and that again he manages to be this incredibly well-respected solicitor and yet do all of this for the detection club and i love it like can i be him when i grow up (laughs) we basically want to be martin edwards when we grow up that's our takeaway (laughs) this conversation for our next episode we will be covering a novel it is a miss marple novel it is the mirror cracked from side to side We are extremely excited to uh, have not only some Miss Marple in our lives, but some Dolly Bantry as well. Oh, you know, Dolly is always a welcome presence. Right now, frankly, Kemper, if Dolly were my neighbor, I would basically be pestering her constantly. I would want her flowers. I would (laughs) want her help cleaning. I would want everything from Dolly Bantry. Yeah, I would just want her diffuse conversation because she's pretty good at babbling about all sorts of things, but managing to be interesting while doing so. And like that is a, a hot she's commodity, still. I think, yeah, at this, at this point in time. Yeah. Can't wait for that. And then, of course, in the meantime, feel free to reach out to us. We mentioned our Patreon account. If you would like some more bonus content about the Floating Admiral and much, much more, you can visit us over at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. You can email us at allaboutthedame.gmail.com. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. We are on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. Our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And if you haven't yet done so, please take a moment to rate and review us. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.